Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan and here is my co-host Gabia. Hello. This week we are talking about Steven Spielberg's new movie, The Post. The Post is a historical drama about the Pentagon Papers, a leak that revealed the U.S. government's lied about the Vietnam War. It stars Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks as Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley, the owner and editor of the Washington Post. It is an, an inevitable Oscar contender this year, and we had quite differing opinions on it. So this will be a contentious podcast, which is always fun. I saw this a couple weeks ago and I really, really liked it. I wanted to see it again before we recorded this and I did not have time. And Gav just saw it a few days ago and I did not like it very much. So we will have to duke it out. I found this quite interesting because I am not a huge Spielberg person. I find him as a person very appealing and likable. I don't tend to well, actually, let me revise what I was just going to say. I was going to say I don't tend to hate his movies, and then I thought of two movies of his I hate immediately, so that's not correct. I mean, he's made a lot um, of films. Exactly. Many films. Yes. There are some movies of his that I like very much. I don't. I can't think of any that I deeply love, but that's fine. Jurassic Park. I watched that when I was a child, and it frightened me. I have not seen it as an adult, so someday we will have to do a podcast episode about it my main memory yes my main memory of jurassic park is that when we were little kids everyone talked all the time about the velociraptor scene like that was just a meme that went around like my elementary school that was the thing that had traumatized everyone so that was you know but i've seen we were just discussing this before we started recording i've seen a lot of his historical dramas and you have not I've seen all of his fun movies. I've seen stuff like E.T., Close Encounters. Yeah, basically all the ones that fall under the category of sci-fi fantasy or sharks. Right. And I think maybe none of his famous acclaimed serious films. (laughs) So I've never seen Schindler's List or Munich, but I've seen Or the Color Purple, which are three major ones, but as you just said, he's made a lot of films. I think I've seen basically all the other major dramas and i have never seen any of the big blockbusters except jurassic park when i was like seven so we sort of together have almost a complete filmography but not separately but i am not a huge spielberg person the last few films he's made i've not particularly loved i do like lincoln a lot but i think that more has to do with tony kushner's screenplay and daniel lewis's performance than anything that Spielberg particularly chose to do, although I guess he had good taste in selecting those two things. So I went into this with not massively high expectations, and I really, really enjoyed it. I was shocked by how much I enjoyed it. It's still definitely a Spielberg movie. It's a bit hokey at times, but I didn't think it was massively hokey, and I actually found it genuinely quite interesting and subtler than I was expecting and I think the thing that is definitely the most effective about it is Meryl Streep's performance and the elements that have to do with her struggles as the female publisher of the Washington Post dominated by all the men on the board basically 
Uh, and this was co-written by a woman, this film, and you can definitely tell that that's the case. This is her Very first Very rare for Spielberg, as I believe was pointed out last year. Steven Spielberg yes. has made one movie with a female protagonist mm-hmm. um, ever before this. Well, now two, yeah. Now two. He made The Color Purple. He's made about 10 billion million movies about white men. Mm-hmm. And this one, it has a female lead, you know, Meryl Streep, and we're going to kind of discuss like the feminist message of um, her role later. But it is still obviously... The kind of the point is that she's surrounded by men, so everyone else in the movie is a guy. Yes. Although I very, I'm very impressed by Sarah Paulson's agent getting her third billing on the cast list when she is definitely in this film for one scene and some sandwich serving. But we all love Sarah Paulson, so it's fine. Sarah Paulson has risen in the world, man. She used to be. I've always loved her and thought she was great. But I remember when she got Twelve Years a Slave, she was like, "This was a miracle." Like Steve McQueen, like saw me in a crowd of like a million other actors for some reason picked me and now she's getting third billing in post. Like, good job. Um, there are a couple other women who appear, but it's definitely a male-dominated yeah. film. Carrie Coon is in it, actually. She works at the post um, and Alison Brie is, is in it, but it's mostly men. But I wasn't particularly bothered by that because of the nature of what is happening and because I found Meryl Streep so unbelievably compelling in a way that I haven't personally found her in a very long time. Obviously, she's a great actress, but I have not found her choices of films particularly interesting for like almost 20 years. The Devil Wears Prada is obviously great. So that's I was about exception. to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. Who doesn't like The Devil Wears Prada? I was recently at dinner with one of my best friends and her new boyfriend and he was talking he is a straight man and was talking about how much he likes the devil wears prada and i was like correct everyone should like this film (laughs) um but she's done a lot of quite mainstream films which is fine but i don't think that most of them have been very good and she tends to play a lot of quite badass characters which that's not necessarily a bad thing when that's all that you're doing i think it can get a little boring and people have observed before film critics i think this is really astute that she tends to be easily the best and most interesting thing in the movies that she makes and not just because she's so talented but because the films themselves just aren't that great the last really really great film she's made i think was adaptation in like 1999 which is a long time ago And I thought her performance in this was incredible. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that she was playing a woman who isn't totally sure of herself all the time at all. And that felt much more human and relatable to me than someone who seemingly does know what she's doing all the time. And I just, I found that very affecting. And so the fact that she's surrounded by men is a lot that has that's very connected to that part of her character and so it kind of all works together in the movie i found at least and of course tom hanks is also very enjoyable to watch so i was like that's fine (laughs) i I enjoy tom hanks so i very much felt that this fell into the general arc of other films that streep has been doing i agree that the interesting thing about this character is that she is a bit passive and it's kind of about her realizing that she does have power because she's so used to being ignored and talked down on which is kind of her main arc in the film 
But I initially wrote off this film without even knowing what it was about. I was just like, I'm vaguely aware that it's about journalism. It has Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. It's by Steven Spielberg. I am not very interested in this because I think I, I felt like I could kind of predict the overall tone of what it was going to be like. But then you very highly recommended it. So I went to it, I brought a few friends. I was like, oh, I'm going to find out how interesting this is. And it was like, wow, this really went to exactly what my expectations <laughs> were. Which is, I just found it, the word I would use to describe it would be workmanlike. Didn't really thrill me artistically or thematically or anything like that. I think it shares a lot of, I guess, tropes with other journalism movies. You know, the obvious one is All the President's Men because this in terms of US history, chronologically, is a direct prequel to All the President's Men, which is about um, the Watergate tapes. And this is the Pentagon Papers, which comes right before. Like, we will kind of talk about the history bit a bit later, because I know that quite a lot of listeners probably won't know even what the Pentagon Papers were, because when I was watching it with my British friends, discovered that they did not know that. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and the film is very much kind of playing to an American audience who will know who Daniel Ellsberg was. I went into it not knowing it was about the Pentagon Papers. So when Daniel Ellsberg showed up, I was like, oh, okay, that's what we're here for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's uh, he's he's basically the 1970s Edward Snowden is the potted history of who that is. But yeah, I, I really just found this to be the kind of film where there's a couple of them every year and they're playing to a captive audience, basically. This film has this kind of sentimental message about how great the American free press is. Um, and it really reminded me a lot of the West Wing in that it's preaching to the choir. You know, the, the audience for this, I think, is mostly going to be middle-aged people who already subscribe to a broadsheet newspaper. So the fact that they're going really overboard with the whole thing where it's like, isn't it great that the Washington Post soldiers on through this legal battle and manages to leak the information and take down Nixon, kind of, but not really until later. But like, it is like a really cool and interesting heroic story. But to a certain extent, I felt like the way they structured it was adding extra drama with a lot of quite basically techniques that I've seen before. Like there's all these scenes, which I feel like I've just seen dozens of while watching The Crown, which is where someone is kind of running along a corridor with an important piece of paper that they ha then hand to someone else and someone reads the paper and goes, my God, and then takes their glasses off really dramatically. And then it's like the next day, there's like the, the newspaper machine is clacking away. And I'm just like, really? Sure. Okay. <laughs> and also because Spotlight came out a couple of years ago, I also was not as blown away by Spotlight as a lot of the Oscar voters were, but I generally think that's a more interesting and kind of dramatically tense film that follows a very similar structure that is very flattering towards newspaper reporters, which is something I support because people have a lot of distrust in journalism, which is unfortunate because people are doing really good jobs investigating things and not getting enough recognition. Um, but unfortunately, the people who are watching The Post are mostly going to be people who already have trust in the Washington Post and the New York Times, I think. Well, I think that this is... I found this movie more interesting than you did, I think. Obviously, it's familiar in many ways in the sense that it's not... I know I keep saying it's a Spielberg movie, but it is. And so he's doing what he does. So it's not like you're going in and seeing something like really aesthetically or structurally new. Yeah. But I found that... The what he did within that, I was not bored, and that surprised me. And so that was a, like definitely enough for me that that was fine. And I liked this more than Spotlight. Like I did not care for Spotlight 
at all. I was happy that it won the Oscar because it beat The Revenant and The Big Short, <laughs> both of which sucked. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not... I'm not like you a know. diehard Spotlight fan. Yes. I also was just like, I feel like we could go for something more artistically enriching for Best Picture, but the Oscars don't work like that. Right. So, <laughs> so it it was the best choice of those three options. But I found Spotlight very frustrating because I found it aesthetically completely sort of unengaging. And I found the characters really underwritten. And like, I am from Boston and that... I was too young to be super cognizant of that story at the time. Like, I didn't read that, you know, piece of journalism. But I know a lot about it now and care about it. So I was invested in the movie before I even saw it. And I found it quite disappointing. Whereas this, I felt the dramatic tension was actually greater, even though you absolutely know what's going to happen. Like, they published the papers. Spoiler alert. <laughs> no shit. I thought that both Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley's, the, the Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks characters, were way more fleshed out as people than anybody in Spotlight was. Yeah. I, and think I think it that's... helps that they have, like, they're very highly documented public figures. So Ben Bradley was the editor during uh during watergate as well yes. so he's like a very very famous journalist in the u.s and obviously uh catherine graham wrote a memoir which then won the pulitzer so it's they have a lot of material to work with right and they're obviously kind of prioritizing that because it's much more character based than spotlight right i mean spotlight was definitely trying to do a different thing yeah which is fine but i found it to me i didn't find it particularly effective and i think Part of what I found so affecting about the post, and I think you're right that a lot of people who go see it will be people who already support journalism, but I think that that doesn't mean they shouldn't have made the movie. Like, you have to no. do what you're going to do, right? But I think, and someone tweeted this too, and I was like, I had been thinking this. I don't remember who tweeted it. Like, I don't think the post would do that today. No. And I don't think the Times would, would they wouldn't make the no. same choice. I right? mean, the Times definitely isn't. The Times, the Times is having a fucking messy time right now. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think the Post would either. So a lot, of the, a lot of the dilemma that they're having is that the, I mean, there's a lot of complications with publishing this stuff, but the White House basically calls them and says, this is putting people at risk and you can't publish this. And this is what happens with big newspapers with big scoops like this is that they will call the White House or whatever federal authority and say, we're going to run X story and basically run it by them mm -hmm. and will redact certain pieces of information that the federal government says this will put troops at risk or this is a national security risk or whatever, which many people have criticized as being a bad practice. Obviously, it depends on the story, and in certain cases, that probably is an appropriate thing to do. But broadly speaking, I think it's very bad. And in this case, the Washington Post was basically like, no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. That's completely outrageous. And in the context of the movie, it does sound totally outrageous. And that's now what they do. Yeah. And so I was just like, oh my god. I actually found it quite grim in that sense. And the movie absolutely is playing to 
nostalgia for newspapers in a big way. And um, I think it was Bilga Abiri's review, which I'll link to, which I really enjoyed, was said that, like, within the first five minutes of the film, he was, like, tearing up watching it because it basically opens with, well, it opens with a brief scene in Vietnam, but then immediately shifts to people walking through the newsroom at the Post, and it's this unbelievably big, crowded newsroom. People are clacking away at their typewriters, and he was, like, completely verklempt because that basically doesn't exist anymore. Like, anywhere. I mean, I would be Um, overjoyed if by just sheer force of Hollywood willpower and making a bunch of nostalgic propaganda movies, more people started supporting print journalism and investigative reporting in general. Like, that would be wonderful to me. So, like, I guess I'm not kind of saying I disagree with the idea of making this film, but I was just like, it's very, it's very basic. It's quite hammy. (laughs) (laughs) And also, like, like you said, there's quite a lot of kind of unsubtle dialogue. The whole, people are essentially just explaining what they're feeling. And then the kind of feminist content, especially, is very clearly set out. But that's partly, like, I am just not, the audience for this film and it's really one of the rare occasions where Spielberg has been tackling this kind of material at all see I I think I didn't find it as hammy as you did I didn't find it massively so like there were a few moments and Hanks gets more of it but like Hanks is quite a hammy actor and that's what he does and it doesn't bother me because that's a very Hanksy role he's a nice dad we like him America's dad It's, it's fine it's what you do and I think like, I have, because I've seen Spielberg's recent films, like, Lincoln has issues with race, but it's not, and there are a few moments in that movie that are so hammy that you want to, like, just slide down onto the floor and cover your eyes, but for the most part, it's not particularly hammy, because, and then that actually makes the hammy, the fact that it's not mostly hammy makes the few moments that are even more just like, oh my god, why am I experiencing this? Because it's so about process. And the complaints about that movie, and I partially get where this is coming from, was that it's basically all white people in the film because it's all about the repeal of the 13th Amendment, which would make slavery illegal as opposed to the Emancipation Payson Proclamation, which actually did not do that, which some people misremember of history class and so it's all about like Lincoln and his cabinet and then the congress and all of this stuff and there were people who were quite upset that there weren't more black characters and I think this is a problem with the film but I think that it, the fact that they were so focused on Lincoln and the cabinet wasn't unacceptable because that was just what the movie was about and those scenes were really well written, like Tony Kushner was writing them. He's a very good writer. That stuff was really interesting and solid. And Daniel Day-Lewis obviously is a genius and was incredible. But then when they stepped out of that room, so unfortunate. Like, you'd just be like, oh no. (laughs) There's a scene with Joseph Gordon-Levitt playing his son that was one of the worst things I have seen in a long time. Like, very bad. And so there is this kind of, like, strange balance that he can, like, he veers into it when he doesn't have the good writing. And I felt this film was quite well written. It was actually co-written by the guy who wrote Spotlight. 
incidentally the woman... kind of, she, he did like a pass over the original yeah, screenwriters because exactly. uh she she's like a first-time screenwriter i think right. so well done on yeah. her big break <laughs> yeah and then they were on the set kind of rewriting things as they went along but whereas lincoln is this kind of interesting mix of really good stuff and then some stuff that really doesn't work at all bridge of spies which was the last film he made which got mostly quite well reviewed i hated like i could not stand it this is about this episode in the cold war where america was trading this spy they caught for an american pilot who'd gone down over the soviet union and it so oversimplified everything about the cold war i can't even begin to express i was boggled by how bad it was and also just not a good film like aside from the ideological problems if mark, mark rylance won an oscar for it and he obviously was great because mark rylance is always good he is everything. the best actor in the world right so like that was fine but it was just a abysmal and all the sort of like american like aw shucks you know stuff like you think this was hammy oh my fucking god yeah that i mean this was this was just was... like the same level <sighs> as the west wing but just to just to talk about what you were saying about lincoln which is kind of the debate over particularly with historical dramas what viewpoint you choose and kind of whose story you tell um, if we kind of just go back a bit for, I'm assuming some of our listeners won't have watched the movie. Meryl Streep's character, Catherine Graham, is the owner, the publisher of uh, the Washington Post. Um, and that's because she inherited it. You know, it's a family business and her father left it to her husband because he was the man. And then when her husband killed himself, she took over. And she obviously has the financial control of this company, but she doesn't really have any confidence. And that's purely because she's constantly overlooked and they do have this really good depiction of how she's constantly in these meetings with these very experienced confident men and there's this classic scene near the beginning where you know she gives a suggestion and tries to share some facts and then she's talked over and then another man says exactly what she says and he gets the attention which I feel like pretty much any woman who's worked in an office environment or anything like that has at some point experienced it's just like the quintessential example it's a simple but effective illustration of kind of that thing i think that you know there's movies like silence of the lambs which are also mainstream movies that do that very well as well but i think this will be very refreshing especially for older women because they're kind of more likely to identify with meryl although i know morgan did a lot um and her journey in this film is her getting to the point as a person where she can make this really difficult decision on behalf of the paper and take control rather than feeling that she has to listen to all of these men for advice. And it's, you know, it is a really empowering story, although obviously it is about a rich, very rich woman who's, you know, palling around with presidents and spends most of her time doing parties. But kind of the conversation I was having with one of my friends after we watched this movie, she hated it a lot more than me. Um, (laughs) which was like yeah she I mean she was like it's fine but also she just hated everything to do with the way it was being positioned as a feminist movie and particularly representationally and in terms of just the choice they made because she um, she's more of a theater person and she also was just like I hate the fact that no films ever do the thing that theater does which is blind casting which is you know you cast people of whatever race or whatever gender to play whatever role which you know is done for things like Shakespeare in films a bit but otherwise doesn't really get done and obviously this film would be completely different if you did that for this story because the whole point is it's meant to be a woman in a male-dominated environment but something my friend pointed out which I hadn't really considered 
is <laughs> the fact that this film is just employing like literally hundreds potentially thousands of like white male extras to sit around and just type in the background and get their like daily wage and that basically describes every Spielberg movie like he's employing just a million men in ties in a historical drama in the background and it's just like that is not a criticism of this film but just like structurally in terms of the decisions they've made to tell this story from this particular angle it's like sure you've made a comment about Meryl Streep managing to empower herself but also maybe make some other historical dramas (laughs) yeah i mean this also speaks to why women should get jobs behind the camera yeah as well which i'm sure they didn't enough in the making of this because that never happens the fact that they picked up a woman's script is a testament to Amy Pascal, who produced it, who used to run Sony, and then got fucked over by the Sony hacks because she was a woman, and so got fired because she was a woman and said some bad things in emails. There's, there's but, some very epic uh, Hollywood yeah. character arcs going on behind the scenes of this one. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, obviously, I agree that like the choices Hollywood makes about biopics in particular are very frustrating because there are so many like amazing historical figures that they could easily make films about. Yeah. And I mean, don't. something that is quite interesting about the background of this one is that in its favor, it is correcting a previous mistake, you know, right. Exactly. Catherine Graham, you know, she's completely left out of all the president's men, the film about the Watergate uh, investigation And there is like one line in that which refers to her, which is a quote from Nixon, where he said, Katie Graham's tit's going to get stuck in a ringer. So it's this like misogynist comment and it's like no other commentary whatsoever. Um, Her name also is not Katie, just FYI. So he was just being a jackass. It was very Trumpian. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy in retrospect, right? Like that is absurd. And also, of course, like this is, it's just like ironic that that film stars Dustin Hoffman. Also, now, like, we're looking at this historical picture. It's like, and oh, I do think it's a better great. film, but obviously it is also sexist. <laughs> so. I mean, I've never actually seen it. I have to see it at some point. Um, it's very good. But I think, as a sort of corrective, I think it's good that they made it. And I said this last week when we were sort of previewing this, but if people didn't listen to that one, there were literally, in a theater when I saw this, which was totally sold out, People were applauding vociferously any time Meryl Streep did anything. This is so American. <laughs> so American. Yes. <laughs> I think yes. this is, this is. I mean, morally it's not the same, but this is like America's darkest error. You know, the, the Churchill <laughs> movie. Obviously, Churchill was a monster, so it's not really the same because the people behind the Washington Post are just rich, which is not the same, and Churchill was terrible. But like, in terms of the emotional response it's maybe not geared towards people who aren't like, wasn't it amazing that we had this freedom of the press in America <laughs> kind of thing. I will, having seen both of them. Oh you my God, see you've Darkest seen Hour, Darkest right? Hour. <gasps> yes. I did not Let know Let me this. tell you 
this is a much better film. Oh, I, I have no doubt. I mean, I have no <laughs> doubt because just even the conception behind making Darkest, if you are making a movie about Churchill and it is anything other than purely negative to correct the previous fictional mistakes of film and TV, then you've made a bad film. And from the marketing, I'm pretty sure that's not what they did. So, Darkest no. Hour <laughs> literally is like, obviously, totally valorizes him because that's what all Churchill movies do. Which is, like, insane bullshit. There's literally a scene where he runs away from his handlers and goes down into the tube to talk to the normal folks, including a black man who he just, like, pals around with and is really thrilled to see Churchill because that's definitely what would have happened in that scenario. I want to die. Yes. And the entire thing is him... It takes place over a very short period of time right after he became the prime minister. And the dilemma was whether they should negotiate with Germany or whether to go, like, really go to war with them. Mm -hmm. Which obviously is an important historical moment. However, the, like, big thing that it's leading up to is a speech he gave at the House of Parliament. And it's the same one that gets used at the end of Dunkirk. It's, you know, we will never surrender. We will fight fight on the beaches. We will fight in whatever. Like, everyone knows the speech. But... Like, that's the end of the movie. Like, that's the climax, is this big speech. I was talking to our friend Charlotte about it, and she was like, the hilarious thing about this is that was never broadcast. Like, no one heard that. It was in the paper. And then apparently, I did not know this. I was dying when she told me this. He, he like, delivered it again, like, many, many years later so that they could record it to put oh it my on, God. like, vinyl. Oh, the propaganda to, machine. Oh, my. Right? Oh, God. So that, like, people could buy this on a record to listen to it, but, like, it wasn't the real recording, because it was just, like, a speech he'd given to Parliament. Like, they weren't recording that in 1940, right? Like, that wasn't... Compared to the end of Dunkirk, where... And we're spoiling this, but I assume you've all seen it, where... Um, There's Finn a speech Whitehead, by Churchill at the end of Dunkirk, spoiler alert. <laughs> right, it's the same speech, and it's Finn Whitehead reading it from the newspaper, and there's this incredible montage of, I think, quite ambivalent images about that battle and the war. And it's the, a very and good and movie. Just the sheer temerity of this film coming along and, like, fucking it at the last moment. It's like, look, Dunkirk, you know, much as I've just gone on a rant about how every historical movie is about white men, Dunkirk really deserves some of the board's recognition, and if the fucking and Churchill movie gets it, then well, oh my I don't god. Think, well, I think Gary Oldman's probably gonna win, but like, Dunkirk is getting screwed. But like, the last shot of that movie is Ben Whitehead's face, and it, he's not, he doesn't really have an expression, it's this it's totally yeah. ambivalence. Like, he's just read this stirring speech in a monotone, and the whole end of Dunkirk, despite being this like, great inspiring story is this absolute just like okay awareness that we're all gonna have to go and fucking fight for another like several years (laughs) like and i think nolan totally knew what he was doing and then it's like darkest hour is like yeah (laughs) i was like this is so fucked like oh my god i was just so so, i mean i realized this is turning into the churchill podcast but when i discovered that the crown is considered to be yeah, but like the cr- like I just saw like something about the crown, just like yeah, you know, it's like an admirably balanced depiction of Churchill. And I, when I watch the crown, I'm always just like, this is all just too positive, even though I know it's not like playing to me. But at the same time, if if your if your gauge of whether a depiction of Churchill is too flattering is that the crown is like dangerously subversive, then just 
Oh my god. Like in the crown, they just have him have this relationship with this young, beautiful woman who idolizes him, and she becomes his mouthpiece for him to have all these special speeches. And it's like, oh yeah, sure, the sure that he has a temper, uh, he has a temper, and he's getting a bit senile in his old age. And I'm like, that's not a really. I mean, uh, just I have a lot of history feelings. In Darkest Hour, he also has a beautiful young secretary played by Lily James, who is the like audience surrogate. Oh, Lily James. I just, the fact that people have to play wide-eyed ingenues is killing me. Oh my god, it's just so exhausting. Is this why I like Meryl Streep for this film? So she's like a middle-aged lady wearing a gold caftan. Wonderful gold caftan, I getting did, a lot of press. I did like her rich lady 1950s uh, outfits, they were good. Yes. I mean, this is the thing, right, is that she totally is playing a rich lady with these connections with important people that she yeah. has to sever, is, which is like, yeah. It's built into the story rather than the usual. It's not the thing, because like, the things that really annoy me is when someone in a film is really rich, but the film doesn't treat them like they're rich. Or yes. when it's really kind of glamorizing it, whereas in this it really was just built into the setting. So I'm not really criticizing that part, you know, they are... It's just it's realistically what her life was like, and you can see how her personality is shaped by her surroundings. Yeah, and she's really good at throwing parties, right? This is what she does. And there was, I felt the film actually did a good job of simultaneously showing that that wasn't a bad or unimportant quality, while also being like she's been slightly trapped into. Yeah. Because part of what makes her actually potentially good at being a publisher is that she is actually very good with people as you can see her with her like doing all these parties but she's been sort of shoehorned into this because that's what she's expected to be yeah and she's also used to using those social skills to be the person who's like you know someone who's bringing people together and not rubbing like rustling any feathers and then the opposite of that is yes. when you're trying to do like a massive blowing the lid off a government secrets report thing, which is the whole point of the movie. Right. And what I found so compelling about her was she's clearly like very nervous. Well, actually, this again, this is the party thing. Like she is giving a speech in the, at the party and it's totally fine. But when she has to do public speaking and like board meetings, she gets really, really nervous. And I love public speaking. Like I totally, I, I really enjoy it. Obviously, you get nervous in certain contexts no matter what. But I, that's not something I have a problem with, but even in those scenes, I felt so sympathetic to her and really identified with her because I just think fundamentally, even if that's not something that you necessarily have a specific problem with, something about that kind of doubt, the way it was depicted, I found really, really relatable, particularly because it is like the one man with all the or the one woman, excuse me, with all the men and, like, having to deal with that. And then when she finally does, again, like, spoiler alert, stand up to them and be like, yeah, no, I'm just not going to listen to you. I was like, yes, <laughs> come on. And the entire audience applauded. And I was like, this is very inspirational. Like, I'm enjoying this a lot. Like, I um, think Legally Blonde did it better. <laughs> I mean, Legally Blonde is a masterpiece. Yeah, Like, obviously. I'm not going to argue with you. About Legally Blonde being like sublime. Yeah. But so what I would recommend is reading an educational article about the history of the Pentagon Papers. 
Maybe listening yes. to an interview with Daniel Ellsberg and watching Legally Blonde again. <laughs> I may I say they cast my imaginary boyfriend Matthew Reese as Daniel Ellsberg, and he only got like two scenes, but I was very pleased to see him. I feel they that- really missed a trick as well because on the day when the New York Times was initially publishing the first of the Pentagon Papers. Do you know what Ellsberg was doing? Please enlighten me. Well, it was a two-step process because he was concerned about the FBI being on his trail. So the first step was he had to get rid of all of his weed. So he smoked most of his... Morgan literally just like inhaled a bunch of water. He smoked as much of his weed as he could and then flushed the rest in the toilet and then went and watched Butch and Sundance in a cinema while really high. I'm so happy. This is wonderful. Oh my god. I actually felt even that, like, I love Matthew Reese and always want to see as much of him as possible, but the fact that he's only in a couple of scenes, like, he's so charismatic that he made, uh, he makes quite a big impression even though he's not in it very much, but, like, do a spinoff with the weed. With Matthew Reese be really high in a cinema. Yeah, like, do, fun. do that film. Yeah. That's great. Because now is the time <laughs> when you can do that. Because, like, obviously, now, we've not seen the Snowden movie, but you can tell that it's really cack-handed. But you could make a really great Snowden movie, but we're going to have to wait another 30 years and it's going to be a Snowden hologram. And in this one, it's like, <laughs> it is time. We are ready for the Ellsberg <laughs> movie. You know, where they have these slightly absurd hijinks mixed with the fact that he was one of the foremost experts in the nuclear apocalypse, which is a great combination of aspects to a person's character. (laughs) Oh my word. Yeah. Wow. That's a wonderful fact that I will retain. Thank you for sharing it with me and our listeners. (laughs) Yeah. The Oscar nominations are on Tuesday. They may have already happened by the time you listen to this and we will be discussing them yeah we will do a podcast about the nominees as soon as possible and upload it and have lots of chat about that yes uh so look forward to that i expect them to be bad that's my anticipation they're always bad but i think this year it's going to be particularly bad so there was loads of really great films that deserve nominees and i think people are gonna not vote for them because the vote will be split and people will go for a boring conservative choice like a certain film that we may have just watched so (laughs) i think this movie's not gonna i think this movie's gonna get nominated for best picture i think meryl streep will get nominated and that might be it i think this this movie's not gonna get a ton of nominations no but no the the thing that's gonna get a ton is three billboards outside Ebbing, missouri and i would take this film over that film Times one million. So Yeah, I mean, having know, not seen Three Billboards, I'm happy to trust reliable sources like Morgan and dislike it and not watch it. It sounds racist, so... It, and sexist. It's And bad. It's got just everything. It's got everything going on. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about this next week, but this has been an absolutely superb year for movies. Like, yeah, I think it's give Best Picture to the Florida Project. Stunning. And yet, we'll see what happens. I think it's going to be bad. But this is always what happens. Yeah. And the unfortunate thing is that the voting nomination process took place while people were in the midst of many different unveiling of people's sexual harassment scandals. So a lot of those votes will have been cast before people realised that James Franco was a creep because apparently a lot of people didn't realise that. Well, it sounds like a lot of his stuff was happening at like his weird film school. So, I mean, I knew he was... I didn't know the extent to which he was a creep. But, like, I knew he hit on girls at Columbia all the time, so I knew he wasn't, like, a great guy. But 
it's certainly possible, like, if people hadn't worked with him or whatever. And he Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm like... not blaming people for not being aware of this situation. But, um, the but voting yeah, it's thing, bad. it's going to have some interesting effects. And we will see how that goes in a couple of days. Can't wait! Uh, so, yeah, look forward to that. Um, as ever, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes. That is how we find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.